I have rolled a two. Two, the topic that the die has determined we'll be discussing today is how do you use history to inform your games? This was mm-hmm. added long ago by guest GM David Freeze back in episode nine. Hello, and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about running role-playing games. My name is Chris Salzman. My name is Andy Rao. And this week we are joined by Matt Wilson. Hi, yeah, I'm I'm Matt Wilson, and I would like to thank Chris and Andy for having me back on. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, you were um, with us way back in the beginning in episode three. You came on as a guest. Okay. I think maybe our first guest. Presumably we've learned something since then about how to do this, so hopefully it's a little bit better and smoother. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what we discussed uh, back in episode three? I feel like we talked about GM screens. GM screens. I think you're right. Yes. That sounds right. Yeah, because all the topics like since then that our guests have added have been much better than that. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that sounds about right. Yeah. So Matt, uh, we invited you back on because uh, so you have just finished up a long running 7C campaign that um, I actually played in. And I thought it'd be fun to have you on to maybe... Do a little debrief on that, you know, kind of talk about what went well and all that. Um, yeah, yeah, and just get the thoughts of a GM who has managed to do a full campaign <laughs> to conclusion. <laughs> a rarity in these times. Um, sure. Yeah, so let's let's start with probably the, the easiest question is like, how do you feel it went? Well, um, I think that we had a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh, with 7C. I super loved that world. Mm-hmm. And um, it was actually an interesting thing happened there, which was as Masks of Nyarlathotep was running down or winding down, I started thinking about prepping a new game. And I had collected basically every 7C first edition book that I could. And I played the card game and I was in love with that world. And I knew I wanted to play a 7C game. So that was one of the options. And that turned out to be the option that you guys selected. And roundabout when that got chosen, the Kickstarter for the second edition went up uh, unexpectedly. Oh, okay. So we decided to, you know, try those new worlds, but there's a uh, those new rules. And the interesting thing is, so I'm very versed in the first edition game world and the mechanics of those and wanted to play the the new hotness but there's also that interesting time gap thing where only the core book was going to be available in preview form by the time the game was going to begin i had no idea so i had no idea what was going to be different in the new world (laughs) i had no idea what the rules were going to be so i ended up just sticking pretty closely to my existing stock of seventh seventh c first edition knowledge which is fine I think. Um, well, you've done all that prep. Yeah, whereby prep, you know, I played the card game. I, I I know all these characters. I have an idea for what's going on in this world. It would it was it was tremendous fun. I I don't think that the second edition rules work particularly well, especially for an ongoing campaign. But we can talk about details there in in a bit. But there are there are some things that are good about it it has a very good spotlight sharing mechanism but if your players want more mechanical structure and i think that players in general do um Mm -hmm. especially around action scenes it begins to break down you said that you had presented a couple different options to your group did Mm -hmm. you is that how you pitch this did you pitch this in a couple of options and ask them to vote like how did that process go and what were the other options? I'd love to hear. Yeah, sure. So um, 
if I recall correctly, the the options were a sandbox seventh C campaign. Obviously, that was what won a version of the uh, Witchblade trilogy, which I don't know if you're familiar with. I am not. Witchfire? I want to say Witchfire. Might be Witchfire. That's <laughs> something we could talk about in a little bit. The third option was a Planescape adventure um, uh-huh. about religion. <laughs> <laughs> no, no small topics here. Um, <laughs> yeah. And just for the sake of people listening who might not know 7C, could you give us just like the 20-second elevator pitch for 7C? Yeah, so 7C is a um, fast-paced swashbuckling and sorcery game where you your, your characters play the sort of heroes from like the classic age of Hollywood cinema. You know, Errol Flynn and swinging on chandeliers and sword fights with villains who twirl mustaches and added to that, layered on top of that, uh, a fantastic element where basically every fairy tale that you've read is is true and there is magic in the world as well. So on you describe this as a sandbox campaign. I think that probably answers the question I'm going to ask, but I, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on where on the spectrum from the extreme of totally open-ended sandbox nothing preordained we just uh we just drop you into the world and see what happens and on the other end of the spectrum like you know so a situation where you have a very specific story in mind uh, for the characters where did the campaign end up falling in practice so i guess i have to qualify that a little bit it was very (laughs) sandbox for me i'm very strongly a narrative a narrative forward sort of gm and player two for that matter but for this one, my idea was that I'd get these player characters together and like moving in, in a direction, and then I would throw plot hooks at them and see which ones they latched onto. And over the course of our of our story, things that didn't get latched onto or didn't seem to be producing, you know, great peals of laughter and excitement at the table would just drop out until there was something that I heard from my players want to accomplish. And is that how it and is that how it played out? I mean I, I from my perspective, I think it worked <laughs> out pretty well. We got to a point where all of the players had slightly different interests, but they found a way to to tie them all together, if if if, if you will. A couple of them were, you know, setting up a, a mercantile company. Uh, one of them wanted to save the boy king of Castile, which worked out well because one of the people who was setting up the merchant company was a Castilian no- uh, noble. And we had a couple of players who wanted to bring down this this evil secret society as much as possible uh, that they had been, had periodic encounters with over time. And there was some other stuff like with you know ancient alien artifacts and Vodace and machinations that you know would bubble up to the surface from time to time. But in general, at the end of the game, we were taking down a big branch of this conspiracy and disrupting their plans to take over the world and being heroes so i I guess i'd i'd throw the question over to chris who played in it did it seem sandboxy but with an emergent narrative to you as well yeah i would i would say that it did especially the first you know handful of sessions right you you just continue to kind of just bring stuff up and kind of see what would happen um which was really appreciated and then it did feel like we hit a certain point 
towards the end where it was like, okay, this is the plan, and now we're going to kick it into gear okay. and see what happened. The fun part for me when we hit that point was realizing that then we could kind of go back in time and kind of pick up little strands and little pieces of, of stuff that we'd kind of dropped that we wanted to bring back into the future um, too for the kind of the final conflicts and stuff. But yeah, it was really fun. It was interesting. I, it, you know, like it, it's weird being a GM playing in a game cause you're like kind of constantly like trying to be a player, but you're also sort of thinking about like, well, what would I do? <laughs> you know, what would I be doing in this situation too? You just can't turn it off, but it's like, uh, yeah, it was really fascinating to sort of see you lay out all these things and be like, okay, well let's just kind of see what happens. Um, there's a couple things that like I personally was sad to see go, but it's also fine right because we had a really cool um kind of end game that ended up happening because of the sandbox what was the biggest uh what was the biggest monkey wrench that the players threw at you in the campaign would you say and how did you react to it besides scheduling <laughs> besides scheduling oh, that's sure. a that's a that's a real answer i mean that's that's a big problem narratively the biggest monkey wrench i think this is both narrative but also um dovetails into a bit of second edition mechanics second edition uh, 7c has this really awesome sounding on paper way of of giving out experience points called character stories where they ask each player to like define an objective for their character and break it down into some actionable steps that they can take and you get an experience point every rung on, or, well once you've stepped through all of the steps in your character story and brought it to a conclusion you get a mechanical reward like you get a new advantage you get next rank in your skill or something like that in a sandbox game everyone chose widely divergent character stories yes <laughs> um and that's fine but it's a lot of balls to juggle and it's led to some moments where some of the players wanted their character stories and i to happen and i you know i i can't begrudge them that and some characters just forgot about them or stopped mentioning them because it was obviously yeah. stressing me out or whatever <laughs> i'm not sure what exactly happened there but we had to sort of like shoehorn you know little epicycles of plot in for specific characters that didn't mean anything to anything else you know that weren't like strictly relevant to the overall story of what other players wanted to do or where the story ended up going and um so i think narratively that was the biggest monkey wrench trying to make things satisfying for individual characters while pulling off this bigger group narrative i had a question that was kind of a tangent to that with that particular example of kind of the character stories so it's a mechanically very interesting like very crunchy thing you can kind of dig into but then, like, if your players just aren't really interacting with it, you have to kind of let it go. Like, you know, so it kind of it makes me interested to know, like, what were other sorts of mechanics in, in that game that you were running that you just kind of, was there whole chapters of the book that you just didn't touch? There, there aren't actually very many mechanics in, in 7C Second Edition. So I feel like the one that I underused or basically never used that i'm saddest about is the arcana each character has a a positive and a positive arcana and a negative hubris mm -hmm. and some of the sorceries especially interact with those for the most part it's it's one of those mechanics that i think if you're really interested in like drama system stuff or mm -hmm. 
intense character drama, for lack of a better word, those things will come up more. But it's an interesting inclusion for a game that, on the one hand, wants to be the adventures of Robin Hood or Captain Blood, you know, swashbuckling, like, heroic adventure with very archetypical villains and heroes. And then it also adds this very, like, theatrical, like, let's, let's have a Hamlet scene. It's like, no, Errol, you know, like one of the things in the book is like, you know, Errol Flynn rolls and keeps all his dice. It's like Errol Flynn also doesn't introspect on the villain's hubris. Yeah. He starts a sword <laughs> fight with Cardinal Richelieu in the hallway and, yeah. and we'll figure out the motivations later. So that's one of the interesting mechanical like things that I, I found hard found hard to introduce unless the players were very interested in it. And some of them were, some of them weren't. So... <laughs> Do you think if you were to run this again, given that it was a challenge for you to bring together a lot of PCs with really divergent backstories and motivations, would you provide more of a focused uh, introduction to the game and give the players a little uh, more push in a particular direction? Or do you think that what emerged from that, that kind of random assortment of characters you got was something special and worthwhile? I'm pretty happy with, like like I said, we had a lot of fun, especially with the like non-mechanical character stuff of this story. That that worked out really well, I think, down to the point where I, you know, they imagined, started to imagine it as a television series. They had like an hmm. intro in their minds, and we had a good like you know television style cliffhanger thing that worked out. We really got into it, uh, interacting with the very rich game world. It's a genre that I think most people can internalize very easily. Like, ah, oh, yes, I'm I'm a hero. I solve problems. I'm acrobatic and clever and tough and smart. And and we're gonna have a lot of fun on this carriage chase or whatever. People really glommed onto that stuff. I'm not unhappy that we went with a more open-ended <laughs> approach. And I and I think I'd do it again. I've just learned that I would probably want some different mechanics around it. I'm intrigued by the way that your players kind of tried to structure their experience in the form of like almost episodes, it sounds like, like TV mm-hmm. show episodes. I've heard of people doing that in role-playing games before, and I know there are some role-playing games out there that actually explicitly direct you to uh, think about them in those terms. But did you end up running a bunch of you know TV episode-like discrete adventures or experiences or was it kind of one long meandering adventure? How did you how did you as a GM structure it? Especially when you saw the characters were getting into that. Especially early on when I was introducing more more plot hooks, my prep would generally just be like, okay, here's five different short one shots, effectively. You know that I'll suggest to them and I'll see what they grab onto, and you know we'll just we'll just get into that. And, and and play that one out. As I learned what they liked, I tried to line up more things that I thought they would you know, grab onto and run with. So it, it definitely was a long series of of individual adventures. After the beginning chapter, I was really just throwing things at the wall and seeing what they liked. Um, <laughs> I broke out the subsequent chapters on more thematic lines if you will, like there's still a bunch of like discrete adventures happening and that you can see a a narrative taking shape there. But like a TV show, what we're doing this, you know, this, this episode is figuring out how to open up our winery that we have inherited. Mm -hmm. 
And what we're doing this time is, oh, that led into, that turned out to be a multi-parter because as it turns out, we met this crazy young girl here and we now have to solve a problem where she's going to burn this entire area to the ground. And then we'll roll from that into, okay, now we need to sell our wine. <laughs> and <laughs> while we go do that, we discover that, oh, there's this undead pirate that's been sinking ships and that's a callback to something in the past. And if they bite onto that, then I'll keep bringing the undead pirate back. <laughs> Or what have you. So there, there were some themes like the adventure of setting up a business, the adventure of thwarting the Montaigne invasion of Castile, the adventure of finding out that the Atavian tra trading company is, is surprise, very evil. 7th C, the topic we rolled about incorporating history into gaming, I'm kind of pleased we rolled that one when we had you on to talk about 7th C because 7th C is pretty much swashbuckling like real world Europe with the serial numbers filed off is that an accurate description that's very that's accurate. very accurate and it's it, it even gives you a date which is which is kind 1668 okay 7th yeah. C games canonically begin in January of 1668 of course it's not our 1668 the world right. is different in some easy to identify ways a lot of what I'm going to say is probably more to do with first edition the game world has changed in second edition but it is substantially similar so i guess on the margins if you're listening to this and thinking like well i thought they had added this or that in in the second edition they probably did they probably didn't i just didn't read it <laughs> i i haven't thoroughly internalized those books yet though they've done some really great work with uh making sure it's not just europe did you adjust anything though to because of like history that you know did you adjust anything as part of the game like, I know, just say, like, towards the beginning of the game when we were talking about setting up the mercantile exchange, there was sort of a discussion about, like, historical um, company setups and things like that. Like, we were getting a little bit into the weeds about, like, well, should this be an LLC or a <laughs> company or a <laughs> S Corp? <laughs> I think where I brought things in from, from history is around the edges. I think that the core books give you enough of a sense for the world. I, I, I they are really well written um, in terms of in terms of background. Yeah, like before, say we we launched off into our Atavian Trading Company, which is like in the the version of the the Caribbean and the New World. We ventured off into that territory before the supplement for that area came out. So that's definitely an area where I drew on my my knowledge of how like the dutch east india company and the equivalent companies in the in the caribbean were set up you know knowing a little bit because of hints in the core book the direction that they were going to go i started painting in the picture that they had sketched out there and for little things like the war between the nation of montaigne and the nation of castile my descriptions of that are going to be more rooted in what 17th century com combat was actually like yeah than the more fantastic elements that the say the first edition brought up like oh they've built a mighty wall like the great wall of china it's like well they probably didn't do that but they probably dug you know this sort of fortification you know <laughs> like that sort of thing but again that's that's just on the margins in terms of in terms of how history influences this setting specifically i think they've done a really good job mm -hmm. with that and you can give give your players like you know check out a three musketeers movie or the latest tv show check out you know pirates of the caribbean and you have a sense for the swashbuckling version of history that's that's in play here 
what is added? And I don't, I apologize if this question comes across as sounding negative. I don't mean that in any way. What is <laughs> added when you run a game like 7th C that is very much based on real history, but then, like I said, with serial numbers filed off, why play 7th C rather than a game set in real history, but with just a few fantastical elements bolted on? What is gained when you do that? And why why, did, why are you interested in running 7th C but not 17th century? But not Zweihander. Um, yeah. yeah. A couple of things. One is that right off the bat, you solve the problem of of inclusiveness in player characters. It's based on a historical world, but unlike our historical world, the European continent has not, to the same extent, dominated the rest of the world and are, are in fact, never going to. There are equals of European societies, both in technology and magic and, and, and whatnot, around the world that still retain the flavor of our world's Africa or our world's Americas, our world's Asia. You don't have to like get into debates over like, well, would a Mayan character have even have the ability to do this? You know, no, they have a society that is on the same technology development. It's different, but it's mm -hmm. they're also out exploring things and, yeah. and yeah. interacting in the world. And you also have like the game is very clear that no, it's not just a it's not a patriarchy. It's it's a world that reflects modern aesthetics and and uh, ethics about a lot of that stuff, except for villains. <laughs> Conveniently yeah. enough. So that's that's one thing that you get there. The second thing that you get there is that you get not just our history, but you get you get a mythic version of of each of these societies. So not just it's not just 17th century Europe. The for instance the uh the analog to to the United Kingdom is called Avalon in 7th C and the Avalon that's there is is very clearly some weird fusion of the King Arthur legends and uh, the Elizabethan era of the 1500s, actually. It's like, what if Queen Elizabeth, but she was King Arthur and they had problems with fairies? Um, <laughs> so it's, it's recognizably the United Kingdom, but it's <laughs> like, ah, we've thrown in all these mythic cinematic elements. And the same thing for like what's called the Crescent Empire, the equivalent of the Ottomans. It's like, what if the Ottomans, but um, they have an empress and they're dealing with tribesmen from the desert in, you know, they have an uprising of tribesmen from the desert. Well, that's 19th century Ottoman history. <laughs> so they've managed to take elements of, and, and they've worked with authors who really do know their regional history well so it's not some weird 90s like hackneyed effort by a bunch of <laughs> white guys who have read books to do it they 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 did with especially with the second edition reach out to people who knew knew that history uh knew that literature especially and devised a, a mythic history for each part of the world um yeah that's fantastic so so that's another thing you get and the third thing you get is magic i wouldn't have uh, thought to frame it in the context of inclusion like that. I thought is a really great point. Uh, I, I will confess a certain amount of skepticism about settings that are, you know, real world, but just serial numbers filed off. But that mm -hmm. is a fantastic reason all by itself. Uh, 
to do that. So, yeah, as someone who is not a historian, because I think both of you actually are historians, right? You both have master's degrees <laughs> of, of some sort in history. For me, sitting down to play a game that would be like European history, I would just not want to play because it's not a strong suit of mine at all. And like, I would feel like I was taking a test. Um, so there's something nice about being able to just sort of draw on like, well, I saw this movie once where this thing happened roughly around that time. Can I just, is that true? Sure, it can be true. That's sort of like an adjacent fourth thing that you get is that there are there, there there's literature in movies that that mm-hmm. most I, I guess I I would like to say most people have have seen a, a swashbuckling movie or have played a, even steampunky games get into mm-hmm. the sort of world that we're talking about here a little bit more on the magic end of things. So I think a lot of people have, if not like correct historical markers. <laughs> for 1668 they've at least seen some adventurous version of that and if you're just and if you're just giving them an adventurous version of that it's a good point of reference yeah you can say like ship and that means something like you can roughly know like okay there's probably sails and things you're not thinking like spaceship or (laughs) something like that right right you have some some touchstones and references that people can understand you know people at the very least have seen disney's aladdin if you want to do stuff in the crescent empire so like yeah (laughs) <laughs> that might not be a great reference for even a mythic Arabian Ottoman version, but there are jinns and there are castles and there are evil viziers. Um, Lots of singing, choreographed dancing. <laughs> we we didn't have time for the singing or the dancing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Chris, to respond to your point, uh, it kind of goes for the GM as well. That um, that freedom you have when you uh, don't have to stick too closely to history. You know, as a player. You mentioned that you would feel bored or disconnected if if you felt it was a little too history classroom-ish. As a GM, it's really intimidating, I think, to run straight historical games because you're worried that, you know, what if I get the facts wrong and the players Mm -hmm. notice? But when you're playing something that's not quite historical, it doesn't really matter if gunpowder wasn't in use in this part of Spain in at this particular time of year. You you get a little bit of extra leeway there to to make stuff up. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I feel like if, if Mark French listens to this episode, he's going to be screaming because it absolutely does matter. Gunpowder <laughs> 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 was invented. <laughs> yeah, so I I wanted to jump back to something that you mentioned earlier about the just the mechanical differences between second edition and first edition. Sure. So when we were playing, at one point you actually shifted us from second edition back to first edition. So I'm curious uh, what precipitated that. And then, you know, also like, so you've kind of played both of them. Which one do you prefer? So just a quick summary of, of how second edition mechanics works, because I think that's important here. Yeah. It's um, it's a system where your characters have five core traits and then they have a list of skills. And when you get into an action scene, you take a number of dice equal to the, the rating that you have in, in a trait plus an ability, and you roll those, and you're trying to make what they call raises in second edition, which is sets that add up to 10. And then that's your action economy, basically. Each raise that you have produced from your roll is one thing that you can do in that, in that action sequence. And that's interesting as far as a way to, like, share share the limelight and to provide a generic like action system so you don't get super crunchy tactical stuff that just doesn't exist here it's very it's very narrative like uh you know tell me what you do but you'll note that it doesn't really have a like 
let's see if you can convince this this doorman or whatever. It doesn't have a, you have one challenge. Yeah. <laughs> You're always going to get a raise. At least one. By episode, you know, by chapter two, you're probably going to have four or five. At some point, it becomes considerably more work, in my opinion, than it is worth to try and devise, like, well, you have to come up with, like, I have to come up with four different obstacles Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, for any given thing to make it difficult for one character to do something. And at that point, why are we rolling? at all in my opinion we should only be rolling dice if we're not sure what's going to happen that's where tension comes so the other thing that happens mechanically with the with the raise system is that some characters particularly those who want to do swashbuckling action are going to get at least twice as many raises as everyone else twice as many actions in a combat scene and with the rules as written they're going to take all those actions first and it's going to be half an hour <laughs> before anyone else gets uh-huh. to do anything. I see what they're trying to do, which is provide a system where it's it's very free form, right? Like you you have this action, and it's it, and it's good for most uses. It's a success at something. It's overcoming an obstacle. It's setting another character up for success, or it's dealing a, a point of damage out. But when you have a table full of people rolling these. What it's good at is making sure that everyone gets to do something, but only if you have enough stuff to do. So, like, after the first couple of combats where our duelist character was, like, monopolizing the entire uh, action scene, I was like, wow, there's got to be a way to get other people involved in this. This doesn't seem swashbuckling. Because to me, swashbuckling is, like, cut and thrust and back and forth and constant peril and constant overcoming of peril. So I, I made a couple of quick changes, even to the second edition thing. One is that if you have a ton of actions, those those are going to get delayed until the end of the round. So they're used if needed, basically, and will yeah. share the spotlight up front. And the other thing I did was I you know, went online and tried to talk with and read up on everyone else who was running more than just one-shots in 7th C to figure out what they were doing. And what turns out what they were doing was a lot of math up front. Like, okay, you need to figure out how many raises your players are going to generate. And then you need to come up with that many things to suggest to do. Because in a one-shot, everyone's like got ideas from movies they've seen. I'm going to swing on the chandelier and I'm going to kick these two guys out the window. I'm going to shoot the barrel of gunpowder out of that guy's hand and blow things up. But it's a lot of work to ask the players to come to the table for every fight scene with a list of those things. Mm -hmm. So it puts a lot on you as the GM to like start introducing more and more elements, especially in a long-running campaign where you got to try and keep these fights interesting. Otherwise, again... Why have them menacing to the players? Because, again, these are supposed to be villains that the heroes are overcoming. And in the literature, it's it's not easy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the a lot of the interesting action scenes we had were very mathy for me, uh, you know, a week ahead of time, writing down a long list of things to do. And you guys did, in my opinion, a, a great job of coming up with your own ideas. But there comes a point in a four hour session where you're in the 45th, you know, 45th minute of combat. And you're like, well, I just I do a wound. Yeah. I spend my raise and I do a wound <laughs> to the guy. Like, yeah. it's like, cool. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So if you have five players and everybody r- rolls five raises, like you theoretically just have, I mean, you can just see like the math just adds up. You have 30 potential things that anyone can, 
that people can do at the table. I was routinely designing things for 60 raises. That was not uncommon because, and the other element, if you have a do list, and every group's going to have at least one because dueling is awesome, right? So if you have a do list, uh, you need to come up with a villain who's also a do list who can absorb some of their, their interest and energy because they're going to have 15 fencing moves they want to get in. If you have magic users... You, you want to make sure that in an action scene there's something for them to do with their magic, not just the thing that they've always done. There's so little crunch in the system, and this is also, uh, that's, that's a virtue, but there's so little pre-prepared crunch that asking the players to come up with a long list of awesome things to do every single time is rough. Yeah, what you guys are saying calls to mind some experiences I've had, even Chris and our Blades in the Dark game, but also experiences I've had with the new Star Wars role-playing game by Fantasy Flight. And there's, those games and a lot of other games do put a lot of emphasis on the GM and the players to be more creative than just saying, I succeeded or I failed. And I think that's awesome, and it adds a lot to the table when you think about complications and advantages rather than just binary success and failure Mm -hmm. but there is a point at which it can get a little exhausting Uh, (laughs) like even in our blades in the dark game which very much uses a mechanic like this where it's pretty likely that you'll succeed but with some kind of complication yeah it's kind of hard to think of complications sometimes and sometimes Mm -hmm. i find myself thinking you know uh maybe i'd rather just just have it not work (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Do you guys run into that at all? Is that something that you bumped into in a game uh, like Seven C? I mean, I run into it even just with with D and D, right? Like if you're if you're trying to make the combat narratively interesting, even if you're just sort of trading blows, it like it you kind of run out of ways to say, and someone swung their great sword. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's not just that in in Seven C, which. And this this cuts to the core of my disappointment with the second edition. 7C is relentlessly linear in that, on average, you know, the party is going to generate X raises, which means that, on average, (laughs) everyone knows how this is going to turn out. There's not a lot of mystery. And again, my feeling about action scenes... Um, in games where we want to get in and, and like roll some dice and show off how cool our characters are, is that the point of doing that is because we're not sure. Our characters are taking risks now where, where they might be exposed to danger, but in a system that's like, okay, I know I'm going to have at least five successes just before I've even rolled the dice. There's no way I'm not getting out of this, uh, you know, unless I, as the GM, get linear right back. and be like, well, no surprise, there's 600 of them this time. <laughs> In which case, they're not going to fight at all. One thing that the first edition system has going for it, and it's a very, very 90s, very crunchy system that I, I don't fully endorse either, but one thing that it has going for it is that you don't know if you're going to succeed or not in a contest with a villain in the way that once you've gone up against a couple of villains in, in second edition, you size up there the, the, the number of dice the GM is picking up and you're like, okay, I got this, this is fine. Yeah. And there's literally nothing that the GM can do short of invoking the very linear, like, well, if the villain spends a danger point and and a raise, they just win. And it's like, I don't feel good doing that to my players. So maybe that's a me problem and not a system problem. I think that'd be a problem if you did feel good about that. (laughs) Right. It's rough enough on players, in my opinion, when something narratively interesting but bad happens to them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to to have a system that's that hin- or to have a system that hinges upon the GM creating danger just by fiat declaring oh 
It's even in the core book. The example is like, well, at this point, the villain reveals that they've lined the room with explosive bombs. And it's like, did they? Yeah. <laughs> Was that a cool thing to spring on your players? And I, like, yeah. I know they get it this one time. And that's probably great for a one shot. I really do feel like this, the second edition rules are, are probably really great in, in one shots or short, mm-hmm. s- short segments. But trying to launch a whole two year story in it yeah. felt awkward. I should go back through my emails because I know after the first couple sessions, I sent Andy some pretty long ones about like how amazing 7C is and how it's revolutionizing everything and it's amazing and I love it. Um, those emails kind of dropped off at a certain point and it was not because of the story. It was just mechanics. It was like, yeah, because we hit that point where a couple of the players who were going pretty heavy on combat sort of focused things were just getting tons of dice and it's just like, if you're not doing that, then you're just sort of watching someone else play a different game which is fine like it was still enjoyable and all that but yeah kind of lost some interest um for me there but like the story was just like you know the story and what the system and the the game could kind of bring in terms of like these fun narrative moments and swashbuckling action and stuff where it was super great so we should probably look towards wrapping this discussion oh yeah yeah. but i had a question for each of you i'm gonna put each of you on the spot and we'll start with chris Mm mm-hmm Chris, my question for you is, having played for, what, uh, two years? That's how long this campaign went? I think That's so. That's fantastic. Having played for two years with Matt here as GM, what is a GMing trick or strategy or devious uh, <laughs> scheme that you are going to take away from that 7C game and start using in your own games that you run? What has Matt taught you? Just one trick. There was a fun story moment well, there's two fun story moments where I just fell like hook, line, and sinker for <laughs> for for certain NPCs. Um, yeah, so there's one uh, one character who was just kind of this unassuming unassuming little teenage girl who turned out to be like the the darkest, most evil necromancer um, ever. But I just was like, oh, this this is perfect. I have to save her. I have to you know <laughs> do everything that I can for her. Um, and then when that reveal came, I was very shocked, right? So that, that was fun, kind of like just playing into, into sort of stereotypes and just fell for it. Uh, the second one was one of the Modachian princes who was, he was just going on and on about like wheat trade and like all this boring stuff. And we all kind of ignored him. And then it turned out that he was the one that was behind some sort of grand conflict and stuff. So I think the thing that I'm going to get from, from Matt is to, uh, not be afraid to have sort of like boring or stereotypical characters that you can use to trick the players. Hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> and Matt, how about you? What, what do you think of Chris really? No, but yeah. uh, <laughs> what, what, uh, what are you taking away from this experience to your next game? You're starting up a new game of uh, Eternal Lies using Trail of Cthulhu or some sort of variant, right? So what are you going to take into the new campaign from this one? I'm very self-critical about things. So it's like yeah. I, I got a long list yeah. <laughs> of things I'm going to try and do better next time. I guess there's two things, really. One, mechanically, which is that I'm going to try and make sure that I'm going to try and do a better job when players tell me they, they have a thing that they will want to be really good at, that they get to be really good at that before the end of the story. 
because we had, we had that happen again. It was sort of a knock on from like the character stories thing, where it, like it took so many steps for them to get the capstone piece to their character sheet that it was like by the time we had time to do all of that stuff, the story was ending. So it was like, mm. okay, cool. You got your really mm. cool advantage and you got to use it in the climax like once. So that wasn't good enough. The other thing I think narratively that, I, that I'm going to take forward is that I'm going to try and listen to my players when they invent NPCs mm. and try and bring those along. Because it's awesome that Chris liked a couple of the, the NPCs that I came up with, but a thing that I had hoped would happen that didn't end up happening as much was that the the group would come up with NPCs. Hmm. So sort of an extension. I just, you know, listening to my players better, basically, is yeah. it's always on the top of my list. Hmm, that's great. Um, well, yes, Andy, like you mentioned, we should probably wrap this up so we don't go too super late. But um, Matt, if you can, and sorry to spring this on you, but uh, we need to replace the topic that you rolled. I know, I know we didn't talk about it too much, but I think we did We did touch on it. So we need to replace that topic with a new one, um, possibly of your choosing, if you have anything that you want to want to add to the table. Um, and you will be one of the few people that have two topics on the table. No one has yet rolled a six from the, the earlier time that you were on the show. <laughs> yeah, I also feel like we, we didn't really talk enough about history but mm -hmm. um a topic that extends from this that i would add or that i would be interested in hearing other people's thoughts on is mechanics that make sure that the narrative limelight is shared mm. um are are still very interesting to me and i think that at its core that is something that 7th c second edition does well so I guess the topic that I would add is what are some good tips or tricks that you know of for um, making sure that the narrative spotlight moments are, are at least offered on an equal basis. That's really yeah, good. That's a good yeah. one. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming on. This was uh, super great. And yeah, thank you on behalf of all the other players for running that campaign. <laughs> but yeah, yeah thanks for coming tremendous on. It's fun. And again, yeah. 7C World is, is awesome. And yes. I definitely plan on revisiting it. Yeah, I think it's good. Well, um, yeah, well, thank you so much. This has been Roll for Topic. I've been Chris Salzman. I've been Andy Rao. Remember? I've oh, been, go ahead. Uh, the guest, uh, Matt Wilson. Yes. I'm going to yeah. interrupt the host. I've been guest twice. I'm going to lose Yeah, you can. Yeah. Third time, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're just going to run host it. Now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remember, if your players are having fun, you're a great GM. <laughs> <laughs>